into the area. Janček, stab through, chance, shot, goal! Full stop! Unbelievable scenes at the end for the derby! Welcome back to Scarves Around the Funnel as we bring you episode two of our two-parter with Gary Locke. If you haven't listened to the first episode yet, please go back and listen to episode one first. But we are about to pick up with Gary as we talk about his playing career at Tynecastle coming to an end and what came next. Right, moving on from your, your playing time with Hearts, uh, you left in... 2000, well, sorry, it was 2000 when Jim Jeffries left to, to go Bradford and shortly after you followed your dad, um, yep. <laughs> as, as your teammates would call him. Um, how did the departure from Hearts come about and how hard was it for you, obviously, being such a big fan? Yeah, it was really difficult. It was really difficult. Obviously, you, you, you're leaving your boyhood club, um, team that you've supported all your life, but I knew when Craig Levine was, was made manager, I knew that I probably wasn't going to be part of his plan. And then, obviously, the biggest decision was um, getting the opportunity to play in the English Premier, Premiership. You know, I think there's, there's not many players can look at their careers and say that they've played in the best league in the world. And, you know, I got an opportunity to go and play in that, uh, albeit, you know, I knew Bradford were, were down the bottom of the league at the time, but just to get the opportunity to play against you know, Tottenham, Newcastle, all these types of teams, uh, you couldn't have turned that down. Uh, and obviously I was gutted that I had to leave Hearts, but I think, you know, when I went to Bradford, I got a new lease of life, you know, I, I got to play uh, in the position that I preferred to play, which was central midfield. You know, a lot of people are like, a right back and you're a right wing back. And obviously I played in that position a lot for Hearts, but my position always as a young lad coming through the, the youth set hearts and that was always at centre midfield. So I got an opportunity to play in there and loved it. You know, I loved playing in England. It was it was a different type of football. Um, you got a wee bit more time on the ball, but I think if you made a mistake, you, you nine times out of ten you got punished. Um, so it was brilliant. I had two two years down at Bradford and, and loved every minute. Um, unfortunately, for me, administration seemed to follow me about in my career <laughs> in Bradford. <laughs> Uh, they went to administration we weren't getting paid um, kind of something that uh, happened quite a lot in my career so I moved back up to Kilmarnock and as I say I had seven years at Kilmarnock and, and loved every minute of that as well great club a lot of great people um, know them all right enough but most of them were great and they uh, <laughs> had had a great time there and then obviously I, I ended up back at Hearts in a, in a coaching capacity Yeah you joined Kelly in 2002, again, obviously signed by, by Jim Jeffries, spent seven yep. years there. Um, we got a question on Twitter from Ek who said, how often did uh, you make out that you were injured at Kilmarnock so you could go and watch Hearts at Easter Road? Um, uh, did did, did you get to see Hearts quite a bit still? Uh, every time we were playing a Sunday or Hearts were playing a Sunday, I would I would go to the game. And All right, rightly or wrongly, I think probably looking back, you think, you know what, I probably shouldn't have went and watched Hearts, especially when I was Kelly captain and what have you. But, you know, for me, 
when I played against Hearts as a command up player, you know, I wanted to win. Uh, I was always that type of player. I was very professional. I'd like to think, you know, uh, um, over the years, you know, I think I've always been a good professional and I was quite an honest player on the pitch. And, you know, but at the same time, if a fan, Kilmarno fan came up to me and went, oh, you're, you're a jambo this, you're a jambo that, of course I am. You know, I'm not going to sit and go, oh, no, mate, I support Kilmarno because, I, you know, I don't. I've, I've been a Hearts fan all my life and I'll always support Hearts. Um, but it doesn't mean to say that when I'm playing against them that I didn't want to beat them. Um, and for me, you know, rightly or wrongly, you know, people say, well, you're a Hearts fan, why not go to the game? You're not doing anything wrong. You know, at the end of the day, I was watching Hearts, but I was also watching players that I would maybe play against the week after and try to look to get an advantage over them and see their strengths and weaknesses and that. So you can look at it two ways. Um, but for me, you know, I enjoy going to, I've always enjoyed going to watch football. I always loved going to watch Hearts, especially with my dad and, and my mates and my brothers and that. So I was never going to change that. Um, and, you know, fortunately now I can do that every single week. Lucky, you retired at 34. Um, how was that decision? Was that, Obviously, injuries didn't help, but how did you cope with, you know, having to retire and, and what was going through your head around that time? Or did you kind of know maybe a couple of years out that, you know, retirement's maybe going to come a little bit earlier than you'd have hoped for? Yeah, I, to be fair, I was, it was devastating because I didn't get me wrong, you know, when somebody says to you, like, something that you've done your whole life, you're not going to be able to do it anymore. It's, well, it's a horrible, horrible feeling. But, about two years previous, I was I was getting a few problems with my knee, and I'd had about nine operations on the same knee. And you know, at the end of the seasons, I was getting clean outs and what have you. And uh, I mean, the doc Ivan Brenkel, who obviously went to Hearts as well, he was fantastic. He was a top knee surgeon, and I went to see him, and he was like, "Look, your knee's not in a great condition. It's not a great condition. You've probably got the knee in a seventy-year-old man." Um, you're not going to get much longer. So I, I kind of started doing my coaching badges whilst I was still involved playing, which was great for me because, you know, when it got to 34, I pulled up at training and um, I went to see the doc and then I went to see a specialist and they basically says, look, if you keep playing football, you've got to end up in a wheelchair. And when somebody says that to you, as much as I wanted to continue playing and playing uh, football, at the same time, I want to have a decent quality of life because it comes to every footballer when you, you, you retire. You still want to be able to walk about and be able yeah. to get about that. So when three different surgeons are telling you that, you know the decision was made. It didn't matter as much as I wanted to play on and I wanted to try and get through it. And I did that probably stupidly throughout my career. You know, I took a lot of injections to play and I took... Uh, you know, I played through injuries that I probably should never have been on the pitch, but, you know, I, I was the kind of guy I was. I wanted to play. And uh, when surgeons are telling you that, then the decision's made. Um, so it was difficult. And I can understand why a lot of footballers, when they, they finish playing football, they kind of go off the rails. Because you know, I genuinely believe it's, it's getting better now, but I think we can do a lot more to help can players that have played football all their life and then all of a sudden that's taken away from them. You know, it's, it's a difficult thing to deal with. Um, so I, I was lucky very very lucky that the gaffer got me involved in the coaching side and then basically the Kilmarnock said I was going to join the coaching staff and then the chairman changed his mind so I ended up out the game for six months and that was the most difficult period for me because you're kind of saying to yourself well you know I've no earned 
enough money to retire. Um, you know, I need to go and maybe do something else. And that all these thoughts are going through your head. And then luckily, the, the Hearts first team coach job came up and uh, I, I got that. Uh, so that was that was like a brilliant feeling because I was kind of at the stage of my life where I'm like, what am I going to do next? Because uh, I've just been a footballer all my life. So it was like, I thought about maybe being a driving instructor or getting involved in all different types of stuff. Taxis, that's a, a normal one for a lot of ex-players. Um, but luckily I managed to get my, my foot in the coaching ladder. So how did that feel when you looked at your phone and seen that your dad was calling and he said, oh, come uh, over to Hearts? To be fair, he phoned me quite a lot anyway. Tell him that he was coming up to tuck me in and all that type of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you that, it, was a, it was brilliant, but at the same time, you know, when he phoned me, he says, like, we're going to go out for a bite to eat tonight, me, you and Billy. And uh, when he sat down, obviously, like I knew, Kenny, being a local lad, and I was following Hearts at that time, because obviously I'd been out the game six months, so I was at all the Hearts games, and I, I knew what was kind of going on behind the scenes. You hear all the stories from players and what have you, and he just says, you know, this is neither the heart of Midlothian that we left. This is a completely different heart of Midlothian. Um, but we'll go in and we'll see how it goes. And the three years were always in the opinion that if they ever interfered, the three years would walk. Um, because we certainly weren't a backroom staff that got influenced by anybody else. You know, if you were going to be in charge and you were going to get sacked when the team was getting beat, you had to make sure it was you that was making the decisions. And then that's what we did. And uh, as I say, it was a different club. It was completely different the way it was run. Um, we had a massive place squad. We had about seventy-five players. I think was it was it not? Yeah, <laughs> I remember Dylan was seventy-four when he first joined. That's right, His squad number. Yeah, unbelievable. So we just tried to manage it, and eventually we said, "You know what? We'll have to split the squad into two. And it was it was very unfair on a lot of the sort of younger lads. Uh, I remember like most afternoons I was taking like see Jason Thompson and some of the younger boys and Kucharski and boys like that. Um, and I just tried to keep their heads up, you know, because it's a horrible feeling, you know, when you're not even in the squad of 30. Um, but I just I said that to us, listen, lads, you didn't want to look back on your career and not have no can no played. So if you get the opportunity, you know, you're better maybe taking a step backwards to move forwards again. And a lot of the boys did that. And then eventually we managed to get the squad narrowed down to about, <laughs> about 40 people. <laughs> uh, to get rid of about 35 players. Um, and eventually we got it to a kind of a working group that you could have the first team and then obviously with the reserve team. Uh, but it was, it was a completely different club at that time, to be fair. There was a lot happened that um, I'm not really going to go into, but there was a lot happened off the pitch. And Ken Hearts as a club was getting a bit of a bad reputation because we weren't paying bills and all that type of stuff. And that, that really hurt. Uh, me personally because you know hearts were always seen in a great light with everybody especially in Edinburgh uh, but when you're kind of no paying hotels that you've stayed in or for pre-match meals and things like that you know you think that's that's not right This is episode number 192 of Scars Around the Funnel Lockie. Ryan McGowan has, has been on a fair chunk um, probably the last 40 or or so and I would imagine in about 80 to 90% of them he, he's mentioned a certain goal that he scored on Saturday the 19th of May 2012 <laughs> at Hampden Park. So Hearts are 3-1 up. I'm going to put it to you, if it wasn't for Gary Locke, Ryan McGowan wouldn't have scored Hearts' fourth goal and you should get all the credit because you were in charge of set pieces prior to the cup final. Bang on. You're bang on. 
uh, Gowser mm. is a Hearts legend for scoring goals for about two yards out. I think he scored at <laughs> Easter Road with a header, yeah. if I'm right in saying. Yeah, Obviously, the cup final. Yeah. But the thing was, goal, that one, I think, wasn't it? The thing was, in the, in the cup final, you know, we had a lot of height in the team. And we, we did score a lot of goals that, that season, um, you know, for free kick set pieces. But I remember I remember most of that season, Rudy Scatchell was kind of on the goalkeeper because obviously Rudy being Rudy, the ball fell to him in the six-yard box. He would, he would rifle it in the net. But we had watched Hibs and Hibs always put Lee Griffiths on the edge of the box. And we kind of changed, we kind of changed our mind that week having watched Hibs at set pieces and we thought, you know what, we'll put Stephen Elliott on the goalkeeper and we'll bring Rudy to the edge of the box because the plan was basically, as soon as we took the corner, 10 times out of 10, Lee Griffiths being, doing what strikers always do, as soon as they see the ball coming in the box, their first thought is, right, if we win this header, I'll run up the park and we'll catch Hearts on the counter-attack. So we thought, as soon as we take the corner, he'll run towards our goal We'll try and drive it to the edge of the box and Rudy should hopefully be at the edge of the box. And it was basically like, Rudy, you just run up and smash it into the net. <laughs> but we also did say to Gowser, you make sure you always run round the back just in case. Yeah. Thank you, Lucky. You know, we win the first header or we, or Webby gets a flick on or Marius gets a flick on. So Gowser always ran round the back and that's how he managed to get his uh, the best goal he's ever scored in his career. Back post bandit. <laughs> Back was bandit, <laughs> uh, and then obviously celebration was phenomenal. Again, like his imitation, <laughs> of, his imitation of this Aussie kangaroo was great. Loved it. <laughs> well, you would have done exactly the same, Gary. Don't lie. You're right, I would have kept bouncing over the advertising both hands right <laughs> into the crowd. <laughs> How many kangaroos are there in Bonnering? Oh, uh, to be fair, th- that was a great effort. Uh, but his, his effort at McDermott Park, and I think it was the quarterfinals. That was even better. He's got the springs in the boots and that jumping about like a headless chick. <laughs> Here's one yeah, for you. If, if if you were in charge that day, Gary, instead of Paolo Sergio and Gauzer's just scored to make it 4 1, there's a there's a kind of common song that's sung by Hearts fans at Easter Road in Tynecastle when we play Hibs. You lucky bastards, it should have been ten. <laughs> Would you have gone for it? Would you have twisted the knife and thought, right, okay, this is a huge opportunity to to kind of let them forget about 1973 and the, the scoreline that day and really take it to them? Or would you have done what Paolo Sergio did and just say, okay, we've won this, let's just keep it steady? No, I think can that, that is a myth, that, you know, like, yeah, that's it kind of up me a little times. bit, because yeah, a lot of Hearts fans that keep talking about that and you know, Gowser will tell you, we're backroom staff, you know, like, like hearts people like myself in it, I can, I, I can certainly assure you there's never any stage in that game where Paolo told That's the exactly boys to exactly what Ryan back. said. This is coming yeah. from Ryan said. Um, you really think you know, that Harry Locke in the dugout would <laughs> What, what happened, to be fair, what happened, and, and every professional player will tell you that, as much as Hibs were poor on the day, you know, they still had a lot of professional players playing in their team. And they're 5-1 down. And what Hibs did was basically they sat back and they were quite compact. And any player will tell you, you have training games all the time where you'll put maybe 13 players in one team and you'll have um, like nine players in the other. And it is difficult to score if the nine players are quite well organised. And there was a wee spell in the game where Paolo just says, look, try and move the ball 
side to side a bit quicker and let's try and open Hibs up. But we certainly, never at any stage did we say, look lad, sit back, didn't he score another goal? You know, there's maybe on this planet that's a hearts man, you know, as much as most of us, who didn't want to go and score seven, eight, nine, ten goals that day. But, you know, you've got to say, Hibs had a bit of professional pride to play for. And obviously, before that game, that and that's the one thing that I say to a lot of people, that shows me that you will never, ever... <laughs> keep football fans happy because if you, you asked any Hearts fan before that game you're going to win 1-0 every single one of us would have taken that you go and you win probably the biggest game in the club's history certainly in, in my time of being alive you win at 5-1 and you still get people that say oh I'm not happy with that I should, <laughs> you should have scored 10 and you sit and go 5-1 oh, was alright was it not <laughs> so that's that's the one thing that, tell, that tells me especially in the modern day you will never ever appease every football fan and that's how managers jobs now are, are basically impossible because it's so so difficult to keep everybody happy I'll rewind a little bit because um, obviously you worked under Jeffrey's had a pretty good season 2010-2011, um, led Hearts to third, a slow end to the season, um, which led to Jeffrey's leaving right at the start of the following season. Paolo Sergio came in. Um, we've heard from, from Ryan and a lot of his former teammates about Paolo. Um, what was the, the the culture change like from someone like Jim Jeffries leaving and someone like Paolo Sergio coming in? I think for me, you know, it was a for me it was a fantastic learning curve because I kind of went through a manager that I'd worked with all my life, played under, um, obviously coached under him, and Paulo was completely different. I would probably say the biggest compliment I can play I can pay Paulo was I think Paulo was a way ahead of his time. You know, I think you see a lot of teams now they're basically playing the the style that Paulo tried to implement with Hearts 2012. You know. In possession, building for the back. The training was based on a lot of shape, a lot of a lot of sort of uh, letting the players know exactly where we needed them on the pitch. And I think there's there's no game for me more evident in how good he was tactically than the Celtic semi final. Because yeah, yeah, I think most Celtic managers that day, Neil Lennon would have went in at half time and said to Celtic, they'll play exactly the same way the second half. Because this is what Kenny Hearts do, Hibs do when they go to hand and you know they'll sit back, they'll try and soak up the pressure and they'll try and hit us in the counter attack. And what Paolo did was, and that was his plan all week, was stay in the game. If we stay in the game, we'll take Scott Robinson off, we'll put Rudy a bit further forward. They brought Craig Beatty on, played two up front, and Celtic never expected that. And that's what got us the, the goal kind of right after half time. And then obviously um, something that very, very rarely happens. We got a penalty in the last minute uh, at Hamden and Big Beat stuck it away. But I think tactically that day showed you just how good Paulo was. And, uh, you know, he deserves you know all the credit in the world. Um, and, you know, it's another thing that up to me as well. We'll know what you get on everything that ups Gary Look, But can people say, oh, Hearts, Hearts finished, what, fifth that season? Can they should have done better? But the boys weren't getting paid for six months of that season. So the fact that they finished fifth and we actually won the cup, I think the boys in that team deserved enormous credit um, because if the boys had been getting paid every week, I would, I would bet anybody that they would have finished third 
at least that season. But we had so much to deal with that season that the boys did great just to finish where we did. We've had some cracking Paolo stories from, from Ryan and a few of his former teammates and Candy Driver getting torn to shreds with a, a newspaper in the change room <laughs> when he was looking for a move. Um, Ryan getting tricked into telling Paolo to fuck off by someone changing a number on his phone. I think it was a night out. I think it was a night out where Blackie accidentally, no, sorry, it was Jamie oh. Hamill accidentally spilt the, the red oh, wine on him. Is if you got a good Paolo story you can think of that maybe maybe the players weren't as privy to is maybe something to do with the coaching chat or something maybe early on or no, any just good... what what was brilliant about Paolo is Paolo has has become like a brother to me. He's absolutely brilliant. Um, fantastic guy, a great family man, but he loved a cigarette and like what amazed <laughs> me was we would go to loads of away grounds and Paolo was a manager who he basically liked the players to get two, three minutes to sell at half time before he kind of went into the changing room. So there's some games like Inverness, there's a fire exit right next to the changing room. So we are standing outside with Paolo having a cigarette and I think it was now another at the time, and there's a few Hearts fans walking out of the pub and saying, you know, well, we're up in Inverness, the game's not been the best. We're just going to the pub. <laughs> and we're outside while Paolo has a cigarette and the Hearts fans are like, no, should you not be in there? <laughs> I would have with him. But that was just as we working, you know, at Parkhead, we had to kind of walk all the way through the corridors and all the way past the main entrance and that so that Paolo could get a cigarette. And even some games, he would set off the fire alarm inside the stadiums and that because... <laughs> You couldn't get outside, but that was just the way that Paolo worked. You know, he liked to kind of gather his thoughts. Uh, and was by maybe having a quick cigarette, gather his thoughts, then go in and address the players, and then maybe make one or two tactical switches. And uh, you know, over the course of the season, it did it did a lot of good for us. Okay, so um, twenty twelve, obviously, um, fantastic day for you, for the team, for the rest of the Hearts fans. In terms of what happened afterwards, let's say Paolo Sergio didn't stay on beyond that summer. John McGlynn took over. Um, didn't have the easiest of starts. It was obviously dealing with a trimmed-down Hearts squad, trimmed-down budget, and despite leading Hearts to the League Cup final, left in February 2013. Um, and you would eventually be the man who took over. Uh, similar to being surprised by the captaincy being handed to you, was... Was this a situation where it took you from left field as well? 100%. Um, I think at the time, you know, when John left, I thought it was really harsh because, he, as you say, he got to the cup final and if anything, you know, he deserved to, to be the manager of the Hearts in the cup final. But um, the stories were that I think it was Peter Houston at the time was going to be coming in as a manager. Um, and obviously for me, you know, I was kind of just learning my trade uh, as sort of first team coach, assistant manager, and uh, I certainly never expected it at all. But I think, you know, in hindsight, when I got given the job, I was shocked. But I knew it was like basically the cheap option, and I think the the owner knew what was about to happen to the club. Obviously, I didn't know that, um, and I, I, I openly say it. You know, I was too young to be the Hearts manager. I was too inexperienced. But I think it was just the position the club was in. Um, so obviously when you get the job as a Hearts man, you're not going to t- turn it down and you try and do it to the, the best of your ability. But, you know, I, I, w- I would have wished that I had the chance of maybe being the Hearts manager when I was a wee bit more experienced. 
but obviously you're not going to knock it back. So, you know, I got I got the job, but I think it was just purely because we cl- the club at that time, although nobody knew, but we were in a mess financially. Um, and under like the gaffer and Billy, when we went back, you know, we, we had a look at the playing staff and the wages that we paid and that. And you're sitting there as a Hearts man, you're thinking, you know, we can't be paying these types of salaries, you know, this this can't be sustainable for too much longer. But then at the same time, you're thinking, well, you know, Romanov, he's got a, a lot of money. He's always bailed the club out. He'll probably do the same. Um, and then unfortunately for us, you know, we, we had to go through the, the difficult times because we never had the money. In terms of that, season that followed obviously 2013-2014 I know you touched upon it briefly earlier about worrying about some really heavy results and of course there was a a, a pretty big hammering at the hands of Celtic at Tynecastle. Minus 15 points in administration a team, basically a youth squad I think you had maybe three more senior Uh, players in there. How How do you even prepare for a season like that? It was difficult. I think a lot of the times you, you try your best to organise the team. Um, you try your best to get them organised. You know, we spent hours uh, shaping them up. And it's, it's girls that will tell you, any player will tell you that they didn't really like doing shape. But, you know, you have to do it if you want to try and get the team organised. Um, and it was a really, really difficult season. There was no doubt in that. Right from the very start, you know, with everything that was going on, um, and it's not just that, you know, we were playing obviously on the Saturday, but Monday to Friday, you, you weren't sure if the, the club was going to get through that week. Because obviously, Brian Jackson and Trevor Birch, who were absolutely fantastic, you know, I couldn't speak highly enough of them. Um, they were trying to get the club uh, out of administration, but they had all these difficulties with the Lithuanians and all that type of stuff. So they had just as much a, a battle off the pitch as what we were kind of facing on it. And uh, the great thing for me out of the whole season was just the way that everybody came together that cared about the club. I think that's probably the most satisfying thing. And, you know, we did we, we did have a couple of hammerings and it could have been easy for the fans to turn on everybody. But, you know, I think the fans knew the position that we were in and that most of them, if not all of them, kind of stuck by, by us, you know. All right, you're always going to get criticism when you lose so heavily like we did against Celtic, but... I think they kind of understood the situation that the club was in. So, um, as I say, everybody stuck together. And then, you know, after that, they, when we got to the administration, you know, the clubs went from strength to strength. You've had many fantastic memories, both as a, a fan, as a player, and as a, a Hearts manager and on the coaching staff as well, Lockie. One that outsiders might not think would be up there was when all of us were invited to a relegation party on the 30th of March 2014. Uh, we, we, we all showed up and, um, yeah, the, the people who, who kind of who sent the invitations were the, the more unhappy after that event. What's your memory of, of, of the whole build-up to that game that week and how pleasing was it, given everything you'd achieved, just to stick it down their throats? No, it was a, it wasn't a great build up to be fair. Obviously, you're nervous, and obviously all the permutations about your biggest rivals coming to Tincastle to to relegate us and all the rest. Of it. And you know, before a derby, you know, I always felt you're better being quiet. You know, you're better trying to do your talking on the pitch, uh, and that's what we kind of tended to do. Certainly in my career, 
Um, and it was just a, it was an easy team talk that day. You know, the, the boys had obviously won a few derbies that season. And, uh, you know, I just took one of the invitations into the dress room and basically just says, look, lads, if you want this to happen, go and get beat. And, uh, you know, obviously we worked on shaping that earlier in the week. But for me, in the derby game, it's about, you know, who wants it more. Um, obviously, you've got to play with your, your head rather than your heart. But you've you've got to win your individual battles. You've got to play well. And, um, you know, on the day, we started the game brilliantly. We got a great goal through Dale Carrick. Um, and obviously, we got a bit of luck uh, with the big boy Foster scored a header, which obviously wasn't offside. And then just when I seen, but just to see Billy King when he scored the goal, you know, I think you can see with my reaction with that goal, mm. it was just sheer relief. But also, it was one of them in the back of your head. You're going, you know what? At least they're not going to relegate us. Um, and it's for everything that the fans have been through that season. I think that was like a wee payback for us to them as a team to say, you know, thanks for your support. Um, at least this isn't going to happen. And then we kind of went into the, I think we played Tibbs about two weeks after that as well and the team talk was completely different and it was like, you remember a couple of weeks ago lads, when they're kind of saying, oh they're going to relegate you, I didn't obviously see what, what the, the end of the season was going to bring with Hamilton beating them on penalties but I'd firmly believed that if we beat them at Easter Road that day, that we would have dragged them right into the relegation battle um, because obviously nobody had really been speaking about Hibs getting dragged into it but they'd went on quite a poor run and I felt you know psychologically I felt if we if we could beat them at uh, Easter Road I felt that you know that would deflate them a bit and, it, and that's certainly proved to be the case when Callum scored the two goals we won that game as well and then eventually obviously Hibs, Hibs ended up losing the playoff mm. Have we seen the last of Gary Locke in the dugout as a football club manager? Well you'll see me before games with the sponsors getting a photograph taken but that'll be it <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think you know you can never say never in football but for me you know I've got I've got an unbelievable role at the club it's a brilliant job it's a, a job that I, I love you know I really enjoy it um, I get the best of kind of both worlds you know I get to watch the team every Saturday but obviously Monday to Friday I'm busy trying to make the club more money trying to get new people involved with the club but also carrying the club in the, the light that I think it should be carried in which is you know, a positive one um, you know if I got involved in a little bit of coaching some you know at Hearts maybe in the academy or that that's maybe about the only thing that's missing for the for the role that, that I'm involved in and Frankie McAvoy has been fantastic with me you know he's, he's told me if I want to dip in and out of the academy and have a wee look at it and maybe get involved here and there uh, he's been fantastic, as is Joe Savage uh, and Robbie as well. So I'm I'm loving it, you know. I'm getting the chance to see what what the academy is all about, um, which is fantastic. And for me as well, when you speak to a lot of fans groups, you know, and you're getting the the information that I get for Frankie and that, you know, you, you get a better idea of how the academy is doing and how the reserves are doing, all that type of stuff. So, you know, I don't think you'll see me back and uh, I dug out as a manager, um, but. You know, you'll certainly see me at all the games because, as I say, I love going to the games and uh, I love seeing the team winning. Look, we've got some Twitter questions. I know you're not big on social media and stuff like that, but we're going to ask you a few of these ones. Um, Anne Waddles asked, as someone who grew up in Lone Head, can you ask Lockie why he thinks Midlothian produced so many great Hearts players? I think it's a difficult one, that. I think um, 
a lot of people say I think it happens at a lot of clubs you know the, the, the kids from the and I need to watch what I'm saying here because I'm not having a go at anybody but I think the kid for the council estate that's not really got a lot when they're growing up I think they have what I would probably say they have a little bit more about them in terms of you know I think when you see sort of the young Brazilians that go and you see this, the places where they've been brought up and they're running about the streets and bare feet and that and they've not just got the incentive that they want to be a great footballer, they've got the incentive that they want to get their family, you know, out of that environment and into a better environment and that. So that there's that wee thing about, you know, wanting to do well for your family and, and things like that. Um, you know, football's changed, every sport's changed. Um, you know, it is very difficult now, I think, for the, the young lad whose parents haven't got a lot of money because even now, you know, I see it with my nephews, they, they go up to Bonner de Gros and it's, it's like £30 a month. Um, and, you know, when I was a young kid, I had a twin brother, my dad couldn't have, he wouldn't have been able to afford £60 a month for me to play football. So, you know, I think that's just the way the world nowadays, it's, football's changed. But um, And I know us as a club, we do everything we possibly can to try and make sure that every kid gets the opportunity to play football. Um because, you know, you could be missing out on the next, you know, Alan Johnston or the next Paul Gascoigne if a young lad uh, whose maybe parents aren't so well for can he afford to get them to play. So these are all things that, not just us at Hearts, I think every club's trying to look at. Um, but I think, you know, certainly the, the lads for these types of areas, I think they seem to have that little bit more about them. Um, and I might be wrong, you know, in years to come, you might find... Uh, you know, kids from more affluent areas that, that can afford to play football will be the best players in the world. That's that, that's great. Um, but for me, it's like we've got to try and make sure that everybody, no matter you know where they stay, can all get the chance to play. And another one from Alan, he says his heart's five-a-side team, players he's played with or managed. That's a difficult one. I mean, I, I just got asked to pick my best ever hearts 11 and that was really hard. Now you're asking me to pick a five-side team. <laughs> probably put... Does Gary Lock get in it? I'd pick, nah. I'd pick Gilles and goals and just tell him to lie down. Because then they'd <laughs> <would> score. Rudy <laughs> <laughs> uh, would have to be in that. Uh, although at five-a-side, you need to run about right enough. But yeah, I'd just tell him to get the ball and shoot. Um, Pitches that small, he could shoot from anywhere. Though. Exactly. Robbo. Robbo, you're tough to have in the team. Couldn't have a half Robbo. He'd be running about. So you've got the two up front will not run about, but they'll score 30, 40 goals. Um, I'd have Alan McLaren uh, just to smash everybody that was causing us any problems. Fulton, you need a limited team. He, he could keep the ball for you in a phone box. He was different class. And Davey Weir, I'd have Davey Weir and all. God, I'd have to have Davey Weir. He's my best mate, so I'd have to pick him. You're lucky it's a small pitch for Fulton, Scatchel and Rollo in there. <laughs> There's not 100%. a lot of getting covered, is it? Aye, but five or six pitches are small, so that's ideal for the boys. <laughs> it's true. Ideal. True. Um, Guys, you're not in it because you get you don't get corners at the five or six, big man. Bruce Cormack, one of his questions was: um, Are there any players who you coached uh, or managed who haven't kicked on as you thought they would have, or are there others who have done better than you actually anticipated they would? No, I think if you're looking at the, the young hearts team that I managed, there's boys in there like Billy King, eh, Sam Nicholson, Jamie Walker, Patterson, who 
I thought we'd all go on and have good careers. Uh, probably Billy King, I thought, was a, a fantastic, he had fantastic ability. He was a great finisher, quick, and he could go right or left. Yeah, I'd probably, yeah. probably say he, he's had a great career, don't get me wrong, but I thought he'd maybe go higher than what he did. Uh, but still a fantastic player, did great for Hearts, Billy King. Um, probably the surprising one would be Callum Parson. Callum Parson probably didn't have the ability of Billy King, but I'll tell you what, his, will, his desire and will to win and his athleticism, uh, he's had a fantastic career playing at you know, top level. Um, so I'd probably say a couple of E-boys. Um, I wouldn't say they surprised me, but I would probably say some have actually done better than what I thought, and some have probably not done as well as what I thought they would have done. We like a quiz on this show. Which player played his first ever game for Hearts on the same day that you played your last ever game for Hearts? Oof, that's a tough one. Um, who would that? Wouldn't it be Severin? Wouldn't it be Nielsen? Remember the game? No, I can't even remember the game. To be fair. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be difficult then. Aberdeen won Hearts nil, 2nd of January 2001 up at Was it? Levine was the uh, manager. Right. Is it someone who played one game only? Mm, he didn't play many. Is he it Darren Goldie? Oh, you're not fucking Gary Locke. It's Sorry. not all about you. You're not having a testimonial. Oh, uh, was it? Darren Goldie. I would never yep. have got that, to be fair. I never have got that. I was at that game. It was fucking grim. That's Darren Goldie. <laughs> Dan, he never played many games for Hearts, did he, Dan? I don't know if he played again, did he? He went to the US, did he not? Doesn't even matter. To be honest with you, I would never have, I'd never have guessed that. That was his only competitive game. Was it? There you go, five then. times, four friendlies, but it doesn't matter now because it's been spoiled for everybody uh, by Dunstan. That's it. <laughs> Got the answer. Always <laughs> jumps in. Well, it, I'll jump in again. Um, Walker, Walker message is saying... Um, what was your most special moment at Tynecastle? One that really brings the most powerful, powerful emotions out. Uh, probably for all the wrong reasons. I would probably say the day that I had to sit with the administrators, and they basically said to me, "No, you're a big heart supporter. If we don't raise one point seven million, the doors behind you are going to be shut." I think that was the. The sort of biggest dagger in the heart I think I've ever had. Um, and the fact that I don't think maybe a lot of fans, a lot of fans did realise, but I think a lot of fans maybe didn't realise just how bad the situation was. Um, and I genuinely never slept for about three, three four days. But, um, and then on the, the flip side of that, the response of the fans after I did the media the day after, was, uh, it was incredible. Incredible. Still, kind of, you get a bit emotional about talking about, about it. You know, cup wins and that were brilliant. But, you know, we came so close to not being here. Uh, but the reaction of the supporters was, was incredible. Incredible. I'd probably say they're the two moments in terms of the lowest to the highest uh, in the space of a couple of weeks, which was horrible to be involved in, but also great to be involved in. Talk to me about this weekend and the plans for halftime, um, Rudy. Um, 
Pasquale Bruno sending a message today. Paolo Sergio as well. What's uh, what's the expectation for how things are going to work at halftime um, this weekend? No, I think, I, see, for me, I think it's it's just important that, you know, there's a few ex-teammates coming back. Um, it'd just be great for me to see them, you know, getting to see the supporters again um, and, and enjoying the day. I think that's the most important thing, you know. It's, although it is my testimonial game, what have you, uh, I didn't really see it like that. I, I just see it as a great opportunity to get a lot of, you know, great mates back back to Tincastle. Uh, you know, obviously, I've only got one worry in terms of, like, I think there's a lot of fight uh, cancellations and that at the moment. A lot of strikes are happening, but in the main, I think everybody that's said they're coming are going to be there. So I'm looking forward to seeing everybody and just hope everybody has a great day. One of my favourite Twitter questions was from Stephen. Ask Lockie if he applied for the stadium announcer job because it's about the only thing he hasn't done. Ah, <laughs> uh, nah, I'll leave that. I'll leave that to. I think they, they've they've got. I think it's Graham Easton and his brother coming in. So they're both fantastic. You know, they do Hamden and both Hearts fans. So you no, know, obviously disappointed to see Scott retiring from the voice of Tin Castle. You know, it'd be a hard hard shoes to fill. Um, but obviously the new lads are coming in. So. If he plays a wee bit of stone noses, I'll be quite happy. <laughs> I'll quickly fire through um, some other questions we've we've had on Twitter before we let you go, Lockie. Um, Stevie Morris, friend of the show, friend of the club, of, of course, as well, um, he messaged saying, Lucky to have had a blether with Lockie lots of times now. His enthusiasm and love for the Jambos is off the scale. Can he tell us the names of 10 former players he played with or managed who came close to being as big a Jambo as he is, you don't have to give us ten. But is there anyone, who, anyone, anyone who was uh, close? Obviously, Crabbe, Gary Mackay, the two obvious ones. Massive jambos. Um, I wouldn't say there's. We've had a few jambos obviously played for us. Jamie Walker's a big jambo, massive Hearts family as well. Um, but no, nah, there's not anybody that comes close to following Hearts all over the place when they're young and getting four days off school to go to Paris to watch us getting humped in Europe and all that. So, <laughs> uh, nah, there's no, I don't have anybody else to be honest with you. Um, no, that's, that's, that's Gordon, fair. another one. Massive jumbo. Lucky, lucky that he is. I think that's why he came back to the club. Um, so there's, there's what, four, four or five that are massive jambos and I think that always helps if you've always got one one or two I think young Finley Pollock's a big Hearts fan as well so Aye, it's great yeah. to see that great to see the, the boys that are coming through but also it's great to see you know, the young lads that didn't, didn't maybe support Hearts but they get they get that feeling for the club you know I see that with a lot of the foreign lads like Thomas, Stefan, Giles um, you know Stef- Stefano, Marius all these boys uh, Gowser I'm a Hearts fan you know grew up a wee Aussie boy jump about <laughs> so it's great to see that you know it's great to see that the boys love coming back to the club I think that's probably the biggest compliment you can pay the club is that when when foreign lads come in they do get a feeling for it and they, they start to learn all about it and how important it is to people and then they, they end up feeling the same which is great this is a, well that takes me on a big question here Lewis messaged us and said this is a question this has been asked many times actually on this podcast which McGowan was the better McGowan Mm. <laughs> oh, that's easy. That's easy. There we go. Dylan. <laughs> I think they were both great players, two great lads, you know, fantastic boys to work with. But I'd, I'd probably have to say uh, that Blowfly was a wee bit better than his brother. 
Um, but you know, as I say, two as I say, two great players in their own right, and uh, very different. You know, obviously Ryan liked to bomb up and down the wing, uh, getting at the back post area. Dylan was more of a you know, centre half, quite good on the ball, liked to leave a bit on people and that. So both got uh, you know their own traits, uh, but I'd probably say that Blowfly would maybe just just scrape it. So I've just done a I've just done a Google for Blowfly. Blowfly eggs are laid in rotting meat where maggots feed and complete their development before seeking a dry location in which to pupate. What the hell's Blowfly and him got to do with each other? See that or Pelican? It's a thinking you hear Aussies talking and that they seem to use that phrase all the time. So it's kind of just stuck when he texts yeah. me and that. I'm like, "How you doing, Pelican? All right? What's happening?" <laughs> No one knows. He doesn't even know what it means. He's, uh, just, he's just stuck with fair. it. I think I heard Henry and Abel saying that one day and then I just started using <laughs> 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 Oh, jeez. John Cowan asked, um, if you had to have a tag team match with with you and the three hosts of the podcast, who would be your partner and why? <laughs> That's a, that's a strange question. <laughs> it's very strange, which is why I asked tag to read out. Tag team. I would just love to see guys are in Big Daddy's uniform. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, idea. Probably me and Gowser would have used to. To be fair, oh, I mean, yeah, I'm not the, sure. You're the I'm not two. Sure. Well, I was going to say you're the two former <laughs> athletes, but I mean your knees are gone now. The way <laughs> exactly, knees are gone. So you, you would catch me, no problem. <laughs> I just jump on Skippy's back. He's Skippy. <laughs> Kyle Borthwick asks, "Has Robbie let you do a team talk yet?" Nah. To be fair, it's a myth that you know. I mean, Robbie's uh, you know, team talks are more than sufficient. You know, he's done brilliant last season. We got got to a cup final, which obviously we were all disappointed no winning it. But uh, you know, if you look at last season as a whole, we finished well, clear in third. Um, you know, I'm looking to kick on again this year, so. I can't wait for the season to start, to be honest with you. you know, the, the new signings as well. You know, I've been really impressed with George Grant. Um, the big lads for Dundee United as well. Nielsen looks really good. So, really looking forward to the new season ahead. And then I think we've maybe got a couple of aces up our sleeve in the next couple of weeks as well. So, uh, really, whoa, whoa, really whoa, look whoa, forward. Whoa, 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 whoa. Care to explain? No. <laughs> You've just dangled the biggest um, card well, right at the end. Joe, Joe and Robbie have always said the squad's going to have to be bigger for the new season. So, yeah. um, as I say, I would I would pretty much imagine that uh, we will strengthen the squad between now and the, the sort of start of the European games. And uh, I'm really looking forward to who we who we bring in. Ooh, you know, what you're not telling. Exciting oh, times. I've told you, Joe. Joe's brilliant in terms of that. You know, it's one thing that. Uh, really like about Joe and respect about him is you know he doesn't go shouting for the rooftops he does everything really quietly and that when he gets a deal done you know we just find out the same as everybody else um, but the work he's here to do the work as long as there's no anybody working finally just just ask you I mean we've talked about your different roles obviously a player, you, you were very successful Hearts, you were part of the team that won the Cup in 98, albeit you couldn't play in the final 189 games, 6 goals um, as a manager you had 54 matches as well, obviously quite a, a tough spell, you came back in 2017, club ambassador um, what is your role at Hearts and, and do you enjoy your, your current position at the club? 
Yeah, aye, as I said to you earlier, I love it. It's a it's a role that obviously when I first came back to the club, I wasn't really sure. Uh, obviously, I met the boss and she told us um, kind of what was expected of us. Uh, in the five years I've been there, the kind of role's uh, grown and evolved kind of every season. Um, so I'm loving it. You know, it's it's fantastic. I'm heavily involved in a lot of stuff that obviously fans don't see. Um, and I think I'm kind of learning all the time about the, the, the other side of the, the club. You know, when I played, it was just a case of you turned up, played, went home. Now, you when you wouldn't believe the, the operation that goes into just getting a game on on a Saturday, you know, it's phenomenal, the job that all the staff behind the scenes do. And can, a lot of them didn't get the credit they deserve as well. So for me, it's it's great that I can, when I do get the chance to speak to the fans groups and, um, you know, you get the opportunity to tell them kind of what's going on uh, off the pitch. Uh, and also, obviously, during COVID, it's been really difficult because I've no been able to get up to the academy as often as I'd like, you know, because I, I do enjoy going out and seeing the boys and watching them training and obviously when they've got school visits and things like that, uh, you get involved with that as well. So uh, hopefully we're getting to the sort of tail end of that and we can start getting back to that uh, and getting to see the boys a wee bit more often. But as I, as I say, it's a brilliant role and, uh, you know, I put as much into this role as what I did as a player and as a coach and a manager. Because um, for me as a club ambassador, you know, I speak to Pat Stanton quite a lot, who's the same role at Hibs, and we're both of the same opinion. You know, you've got to carry your farewell, got to make sure that when you do go and speak to other people, that you're telling them, you know, how good the club is and all the stuff the club's doing off the pitch that you never hear about. Um, you know, helping kids with school, refugees that come in and uh, come into the stadium kids and adults to come in and learn uh, IT and how to use a computer, all that type of stuff, you know, it's massive and it's important that, uh, you know, we get that message out there to people. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and chat with us. No and, problem, lads. And of course, appreciate the time that you've you've put into the club as well. More than two decades, I think, this weekend's testimonial is um, richly deserved. It's been a long time coming and, um, and hopefully, uh, hopefully it's a good game as well. Hopefully a few people turn out. And yep. it's, a, it's a good day in the sun and um, we all enjoy a, a good match at Tynecastle uh, ahead of the new season. Um, and obviously keep up the good work. Keep up the good work no in problem, terms lads. of uh, promoting the, the good name of Heart Midlothian. And thank you very much again for, for spending the last hour or two with no, us. No problem, lads. I appreciate you having me on. I hope you uh, have a good couple of days and hopefully see you at the weekend. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, thank you, mate. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> right, Cheers, All right, thanks yeah. a lot. All the best. Thanks, mate. Bye. Right. See you, Pelican. Right, that was Gary Locke joining us for a two-parter on Scarves Around the Funnel in his testimonial week to talk about his playing, coaching, ambassadorial, and what other else career he's had. At uh, at Tynecastle, and as we expected, Mark, um, just a, a legend of the club, and always a really good value to speak to. Yeah, we would probably bleed maroon. He's so involved in in the football club. I have to say as well, for someone from Bonnerig, uh, I, I thought he was on his best behaviour, and I thought some of Gowser's language um, was, was <laughs> awful today. Uh, <laughs> language. Oh, you dropped a couple of C bombs and all sorts. Oh, yeah. Oh. I thought uh, I thought I was in the Bonnie Rick Social Club, <laughs> but, <laughs> but some great, back in the great stories. 
and and I'm sure Laurie will find a way to um, to post some of the pictures up that he was sending to us while we were doing that from uh, from 2012 of Gowser crowd surfing at uh, in Bonnerig as well. Just great, and I really hope that people can can show up. I know it's on Hearts TV um, this weekend, but really hope that's just for for people like me who are overseas or for those in the United Kingdom or Europe that can't get to Tynecastle. And if you do have a chance of of being there. Um, testimonials are rare now and when they do come around they're usually deserved this one certainly is yeah so get on the hearts website you can buy tickets there 12 quid for an adult six quid for concessions and it's only four quid for under 13 so pretty good um good value for a day out for for you and the family if you want to go to hopefully the weather will be nice again and it'll be a competitive game as well this is the thing and I, i quite like that i know some people think about testimonials, it'll be a run out for a lot of the legends. And yes, we will have at halftime, the likes of Rudy will be there. But this is a competitive game. This is, you know, Robbie Nielsen's big final final match before um, the season starts. It's against a championship team. You know, Michael O'Neill, good manager, a really good squad there. This will be a good game of football. Yeah, very much so. And, and like you said, Stoke and Opusha was, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier on in the show about Harry Suda obviously um, keeping close contact with him with his in the Socceroos squad and you know last year they were looking for promotion I think this year again so like you said it's a it's an interesting game and it's a it will be really good to see sort of where hearts are at you know only a week out from the season starting so I think there'll be a big crowd there not only because it's Lockie's testimonial but because a lot of fans will be very interested to see how hearts get on against you know good quality opposition and Ryan on Gary Lock I mean it it's quite incredible, you know. He's when he came through at Hearts. You know, he came into a team. You know, Sandy Clark took over as boss. He had the likes of John Robertson, you know, John Cahoon around him in that team. Um, he was around when Hearts won the cup in '98. Came back as a fan in 2006, of course, to see that one. Came back and coached the club. You know, coached Rudy Scatchell uh, when he was there. Then managed the club. So he was. He's been an active part of Heart of Midlothian for pretty much all the, the pivotal pivotal eras of the last kind of four decades almost. It's he's it's quite incredible his affiliation with the club, isn't it, at this point? Yeah, and just listening to him, you can just tell how much the club means to him. And and like you said, if he wasn't involved in the club, he'd still be there every week. You know, that that's just the the life that he's grown up in and, and that's what all of his family and closest friends are. They, they, they just live and breathe hearts and, and you need those people in the club. And, you know, for me coming through and when he was part of that coaching staff, it was just infectious. It just made you, you know, Lockie would say, oh, my friend thought you were shit or my friend loves you and, you know, everyone was talking about you at the par or we need to win this game, all my mates are coming up. It, just little things like that for, you know, the foreigners that were there, it, it puts a little bit of a personal touch on it and I think that's half the battle of, you know, sometimes when foreign players or, or players come to a club, you want to have that feeling of that it means, you know, such importance to to people's lives. And, you know, that's what all fans of all clubs want is for, you know, players that are out there that, that are trying their very best to, you know, make your weekend a little bit more, you know, better than your week. And um, Lockie's definitely one of those characters that, you know, I think in another 20, 30 years time, he'll still be in and around Tynecastle and, and in and about the suites. Um, you know, telling everybody that will listen how much he loves the club. 
<laughs> and Mark, you know, people sometimes joke about these ambassador positions, and I think in, it, sometimes you see former players brought back in to to just just to be there to be a personality. But you you can tell with with Gary, it's it's more than that. It, this is a job that he takes a lot of pride in, and he puts a lot into the club. And I think it has a lot of benefit to Hearts to have someone with that sort of passion and drive in a role like that. I agree, yeah. I haven't heard of too many club ambassadors being sacked unless they do some rascal behaviour. It's a job for as long as he wants it, basically. I thought it was really interesting when he was talking. I asked him, would he get back into management? And he said no. It's not for him because of the job that he has now. There's very few jobs in the world that would stop someone from who's managed before from getting back in the dugout. He's probably found the only one that, that would do that. And... I, I hope the way Hearts are going, and, and we've spoken over the past few weeks about how impressed we are at the, the management of the football club, not just Robbie Nielsen I'm talking about, I'm talking about the whole structure of the football club, and it's as good as, as we can remember. I hope that in 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time, that whoever the manager is, whoever the players are, the fans will still be the same. I hope that Gary Locke is, is still the club ambassador because he doesn't want to, to get back into... To management, um, he gets to see the club every single week. He would be there anyway, and he gets to try and get new people on board, whether it's um, from a financial perspective or anything like that, from ads or or whatever. He's uh, he's the perfect guy for it. Uh, you being in a job, it isn't so much a job if you absolutely love what you're doing. It's it's more of a hobby, and I don't think Hearts could find a better person right now for this role. Because you know he's not going to be searching for something else. And it's his as long as he wants it. And I, I think that's a great position for him. So, Guy Locke's testimonial this Saturday, Hearts against Stoke City. Get yourself along if you can. If you are unable to attend, it will be available on Hearts TV as well. So keep an eye on the Hearts website and the social media feed for more details about that. Uh, thanks for tuning in. As always, uh, you can get in touch with the podcast on Twitter at Around the Funnel, or you can email podcast at scarvesaroundthefunnel.co.uk. We will be back next week to discuss all things Maroon, and we'll see what happens in the match at the weekend. But until then, thanks for tuning in. So I say, I say welcome, welcome to the moon town.